My name's Tom Jennings, and this is the 24 Frames Cast. Now, if you have followed this podcast over the years, or you are new to it, um, I have a bit of an introduction to this episode. So basically, over the years, I have been doing episodes going through the Bond franchise, and I was uploading them to my blog on the exclusives page. They weren't released on the main feed. And recently, I moved the 24 Frames cast from servers to another podcasting hosting service. And in doing that move, one of the things I wasn't able to do was upload exclusive episodes individually. I had to put them through a feed. So my idea was to upload and move the Bond episodes to YouTube. And when I tried to do this, what happened was I got a load of copyright strikes against my YouTube account. So it wasn't an issue. So what I did, well, sorry, it had to become an issue. So I went back and I went through the various hard drives I have with all the old episodes of the 24 frames cast stored on it. And much to my horror, what I realized early on was in some cases for the Bond episodes, all I had was an MP3 of the completed files not the constituent parts i my recording and the um, soundtrack so basically i couldn't go back and remove the offending copyrighted material and i didn't really want to do it anyway because i quite liked how they sounded so i managed to go through all the episodes that i had and some as i said i've only got the completed mp3 others i used to edit these episodes on garage band i have the original garage band files but i will have to remake the um the audio back up and export them at least two i will have to re-record because i simply cannot find the episodes anywhere so rather than not have these episodes available um i've kind of thought of a solution to it so what i'm going to do over the next few weeks is release a series of bond episodes that are amalgamations of these individual episodes that i've already done um the audio quality on them um varies especially in this first sean connery Um, part that I'm going to be releasing and it will sound a bit weird because on each film I'm saying this is 24 frames cast and I'm saying thanks for listening and goodbye and it'll just go into the other one but rather than have them go nowhere I decided this might be a nice way of putting them out there so I'm going to be releasing them as bonus episodes and I'm basically I've decided I'm just going to divide them into chapters for each bond so this one is going to be Um, the Sean Connery years from Doctor No. I know we take a slight uh, detour with On Her Majesty's Secret Services, but it will end with Diamonds Are Forever. And the next part will cover the years of Roger Moore. So without any further ado, and this really was kind of going back in time with me because I recorded some of these almost 10 years ago, I think. Um, This is going to kick things off with the James Bond retrospective. And this is part one, Sean Connery. My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames cast. I'm just going to kick off a new series of shows that will be exclusive to the blog so they won't be appearing on the feed and if you do want them um, do check that page out 
because hopefully there should be something going on there about once every three weeks or so. Um, I've decided to kick things off with a James Bond retrospective. I'm going to go through every single film in the series and although probably the world doesn't need another kind of James Bond retrospective series it's a film franchise that has been with me my entire life and I've kind of gone through kind of three phases of it Um, the first phase was as a child where I used to absolutely love the films they were very much the staple of bank holiday TV entertainment in the 80s and early 90s and then as I kind of hit my teens I kind of began to think they were rather stupid and I think I, I was going through something of a kind of a film snob stage and I kind of found them to be incredibly repetitive. Um, it, this was kind of also the, the era of the Brosnan Bond films, which, although it started quite promisingly with Goldeneye, I think quite quickly descended into loud pantomime. And my kind of third phase has come in the past few months where you can actually pick most of them up now on Amazon Marketplace for about a pound each, and I've been buying up all, all of them. Going back and watching some of them again has been fairly joyous experience I think I kind of um, have fallen back in love with them and wanted to share my thoughts on them with you now obviously we're gonna have to kick things off with Dr. No and the last film in the Bond series I watched before this was Quantum of Solace which was a loud brash jaunt around the world we will obviously get there in this retrospective series but come the end credits of the film I was kind of like god that was a little bit too much and when I went back and watched Dr. No I was kind of struck with two things. Number one was how far Bond has gone in almost 50 years from Dr. No to Quantum of Solace. And number two was how amazing this film must have seemed to a contemporary audience. Now, it was a massive hit around the world, but especially in Britain. And I think it's a perfect example of a film coming out at exactly the right time in history. Now, post-war Britain was not a particularly great place to be. Although we had won the war, the country was on the brink of bankruptcy. We had a massive empire that we couldn't afford and the populations of those countries in the empire were beginning to want their independence. India, Israel, to name but a few. Now, there was another very pressing issue with Britain, which was America had lent the country billions of dollars worth of military equipment. And naturally, once the fighting stopped, America wanted its money back. A delegation was sent over to America from Britain to try and renegotiate the terms to kind of explain the situation that the country was in. This went on for several weeks and the Americans turned round and said no. So Britain had a massive debt to pay. Much of the country was still in ruins from the war. Parts of London weren't actually rebuilt until the mid 50s and if you go back and listen to an episode I did in a film called Paul of London that was actually set um, in the early 50s and many of the locations in that were kind of bombed out rubble. The effect of course on British society was massive. There simply wasn't the money to put back into public finances and I think for many it was an extremely depressing era from the end of the war to the late 50s and this was of course reflected in the arts you had the rise of the British kitchen sink movement which had a very much a focus on gritty reality films like Saturday night and Sunday morning and a taste of honey that kind of dealt with topics from interracial affairs to backstreet abortions the films were massively popular yet I think conveyed a feeling of the 
almost hopelessness of the situation Britain was in. Now, the late 50s would see the Conservative Prime Minister Howard Macmillan usher in a new age of Britain. And although we kind of didn't rule most of the world anymore, Britain was reinvented as a kind of cool, confident country that wasn't afraid to flex its muscles abroad where needed. And it's fair to say that this would kind of lead to the whole kind of swinging 60s and I suppose Tony Blair would uh, rob this idea when he launched kind of the Cool Britannia branding for Britain in the 1990s. But crucially, British people were back in employment, earning good money, and in some way the country as a whole had regained its confidence. Author Ian Fleming had worked with British naval intelligence during World War II, reaching the rank of commander. And like the novels he would later write, Fleming was involved in planning daring commando raids and acts of counter-espionage and DK operations. One of these would be a operation involved in the spying on Spain to make sure they weren't going to join the war on the side of the Germans. And the code name for this operation was, by the way, Goldeneye, which was also the name of Fleming's retreat in Jamaica. After the war had ended, Fleming mined his experiences during the war and created the James Bond character. The first novel, Casino Royale, was published in 1953 and it was an instant success and many more novels with the James Bond character would come out in the prevailing years. With Britain entering this new age of prosperity and confidence, it really kind of seemed only a matter of time before this suave British character would be brought to the big screen. Producer Harry Saltman acquired the rights to Bond and would later be joined by Albert Cubby Broccoli and the two would form a partnership producing the Bond films until 1975. With an established international audience it would stand to reason therefore that it would be extremely easy to get the Bond films brought to the big screen but the answer for many studios was a resounding no too British was the complaint from one studio. It won't sell overseas, snorted another. Eventually, Sussman and Broccoli were able to secure a million pounds of funding from United Artists. And it wasn't Casino Royale they were trying to get funded, it was, of course, Doctor No. With a young, good-looking Scotsman called Sean Connery cast as the lead role of James Bond, production began at Pinewood Studios and on location in Jamaica. And of course, one of the world's most successful film franchises was born. Coming out of the age of the kitchen sink dramas, I wonder what people have felt when they sat down and saw that Marie Spender opening sequence. How fresh and unique this would have looked to them. And of course, as the film gets underway, we are introduced to Bond. Connery is of course the epitome of cool. Men want to be him and women want to be with him. And we reintroduced him winning at the car tables, nonchalantly walking off with a massive pile of cash and a beautiful woman. What isn't there to love about him? Many directors actually turned down Dr. No before eventually Terence Young would take up the reins. Now, now if you were brought up with the Brosnan and Craig Bond films, I think the plot of Dr. No may seem a little pedestrian. Bond is sent to Jamaica to investigate the death of a fellow agent, leading him to the mysterious Dr. No, who is plotting to disrupt an American rocket launch. I don't think it's particularly harsh to say that Young's direction in the film is not overly stylistic, but what he does is create an exciting, tight detective thriller, which is, I think, what Dr. No feels like almost more than it does the kind of the bomb film that we kind of stereotypically think of. 
you won't see gadgets or a massive Bond villain lair, but you do get the familiar, of course. We have Money Penny, and of course, it is a film about origins, the Walter PPK, which is given to Bond by Q, although it isn't um, Desmond Llewellyn who actually is in the role, and it's not actually acknowledged that the guy giving him the gun is actually Q, but we find out the reason why he's been given this Walter PPK, and it's because it's a more powerful handgun than the Beretta that he was using, which takes down assailants a lot quicker. We find out that Bond was badly wounded in a previous mission using his Beretta, so I think that's a nice little touch that the kind of the Walter PPK is being given to him because not through kind of choice as it were, but because it's kind of a better weapon for him to use in the field. The relationship with the marvellous Lois Maxwell as Money Penny is established as well, the kind of the casual flirting. One of the things I do love about Doctor No is that we learn that when uh, Bond goes to M's office, it's actually three o'clock in the morning and I kind of wonder what kind of hours Money Penny is forced to work and you know, does she actually get paid overtime for all this? And of course Bernard Lee as M who kind of I think plays that kind of British aristocracy so well you can kind of imagine him as being from incredibly good stock and really not approving of the young upstarts like Bond who are kind of taking over his beloved MI6. Of course Felix Leider from the CIA turns up played by Jack Lord Again, it's another thing I think I, I kind of love about these Bond films is that it's the kind of the re-establishment of Britain as a world power. Although the CIA are there, it is definitely Britain who are leading this operation to save the Americans. Although it's actually made on a limited budget, Doctor No does look like a far more expensive film. And of course you have to salute the work of Ken Adam, which I'm sure I'll be doing a lot through this retrospective. I think it's kind of a testament to kind of how massive James Bond will later get in the series that I think this kind of smaller scale to the film is actually one of the reasons why I love it so much. The detective elements to it kind of I think I really enjoyed. You don't obviously you don't see all these kind of incredible gadgets but what you do see is kind of practical little traits that obviously Bond picks up from his spy school. The way he plucks the hair out and puts it over the two doors on his wardrobe to make sure that he will be able to tell if anyone has come into his room and opened them. The way he puts dust on his briefcase to check for fingerprints just to make sure no one's tampering with it. And I think there is an element in the film to danger. As I said before that, we find out that he was actually badly wounded in the previous mission, but he doesn't seem the kind of wonder hero that he becomes in later films. There is a scene quite early on where he narrowly escapes assassination just because the would-be shooters are actually disturbed by a car and I think it gives the film that little edge that it needs that we know that Bond is someone who is fallible and not immune from danger which is actually lurking in Jamaica. Connery's performance is of course I think absolutely brilliant. I've heard that he was um, really taken aside by Terence Young and um, in many respects was actually mimicking Young himself but what I love about the character is that ruthless streak that Connery portrays so well. In one scene, he takes out one of Dr. No's associates, simply kind of sitting on a chair. He was actually playing cards before the guy came in, and then just, without even batting an eyelid, just puts two bullets in him once he's kind of got the information out of him we need. It's incredibly, um, I think, surprising how violent the film is. Um, there's a scene where one of um, Felix Leider's helpers, a guy called Quarrel, is stabbed in the face with a um, 
bulb from a camera and and although you don't actually see any blood it is quite a kind of um, a brutal moment of course we also get the idea that Bond is something of a philanderer I mean he um, I wouldn't say that he um, treats women with a great deal of respect but we we certainly get this idea that he is um, fairly irresistible to them and they just seem to kind of surrender to him as soon as he um, makes it perfectly clear that he wants a shag. There are other stars in the film of course and most notably Monty Norman who is on soundtrack duties. I absolutely love how many different kind of styles of music there are in Doctor No. There's the kind of obviously the the iconic James Bond theme but also kind of um, music which feels like it's been directly influenced from bands in Jamaica. Peter Hunt who would later go on to direct one of the Bond films is also on hand to do the editing and it's one of the things that I really kind of have to salute him and Young on is how well paced the film is. Going from Quantum of Solace to this, you see how situations are given time to breathe. Most of the film does take place in kind of mid shots, and it's just great fun watching people kind of interact with each other and seeing Bond piece the mystery together without a thousand cuts and endless establishing shots of cities. Ted Moore's cinematography as well, I think, is pretty top-notch I think Doctor No is an extremely good-looking film to watch and I kind of go back to the idea that you know for contemporary audiences seeing somewhere like Jamaica would have been quite exotic to them and I think what Ted Moore does is that he he seems to know that people would be interested in the location itself and shoots in it in a way I'm sure that kind of exemplifies the personality and characteristics of Jamaica I don't know how much I can kind of um, praise the restoration job that they've done on Doctor No for the DVD. I've got the standard edition um, DVD, not the Blu-ray, and honestly, on a big television, on an upscaling Blu-ray player, it looked as good as Blu-ray. It was absolutely stunning to see. If I were to criticise the film, I think its final third doesn't quite live up to what goes before. We are introduced, of course, to the incredible Honey Rider, played by Yulza Andres. Now, obviously, the image of her coming out of the sea in a bikini is one of the most iconic, not only in this franchise, but in the whole of film. Yet, really, when you look at it, she is just there for pure audience titillation. There is absolutely no point to her character whatsoever. She serves absolutely no other purpose other than that she needs to be rescued by Bond and obviously given a good seeing to in the boat home. The film dispenses with quarrel in pretty harsh ways, actually flamethrowered to death by a armoured car that's made to look like a dragon. And of course when we enter Dr No's lair, played by Joseph Wiseman, we get another sense of the kind of the scale to the James Bond film, because we suddenly get this kind of Chinese influence, the um, Dr No character, they actually kind of uh, applied makeup to make him look a little bit more Asian. But what I love about it is, obviously this was the time of the Cold War, and that we have this mysterious organisation called Spectre, and their motives aren't political, it's more kind of like global crime that transcends the kind of the pettiness of communism versus capitalism. Dr. No is utilising nuclear energy to bring these rockets down, and this is rather kind of, I suppose, the early 60s saw the kind of the rise of the campaign for nuclear disarmament and this isn't kind of people using nuclear weapons to blow up half a country they're kind of using them for these kind of exotic weapons that can disrupt rocket launches and I, again I kind of come back to the idea that I should imagine how exciting this must have all felt to the audiences at the time but 
The film obviously then gets some kind of Bond logic that we will see repeated throughout. Doctor No has many, many opportunities to simply put a bullet in Bond's head, although he kind of doesn't bother, and puts him in a cell, which I think even my mother would be able to escape from in about 15 minutes. The other thing that kind of always makes me laugh is what he does with Honey Rider. Rather than just obviously take her out the back, put a bullet in her again, she's strapped to the floor so she can be drowned for when the tide comes in. Again, you know, what it is with these guys, I mean, we know they're kind of evil, but they are also pretty stupid. But come the final credits of Doctor No, I think it would be kind of impossible not to see what audiences loved about the film. Although the critical reaction to it was mixed, it was a massive box office success over the world and quickly became a culture icon. If you kind of look at the, uh, going back to Saturday night and Sunday morning, the lead character in that is this kind of down and out slob who goes around cheating with uh, married women. He's a complete fuck up and really Bond is the polar opposite of that. This guy is perfectly in control of everything around him and in Connery obviously he's an extremely good looking guy. It almost seems really I suppose how could Doctor No not be anything other than a massive success. And of course it would see the birth of the Bond franchise. And that will be it for this episode of the 24 Frames cast James Bond retrospective. I will be back in a couple of weeks with From Russia With Love. If you want to email me you can at 24framescast at gmail.com if you want to find me on twitter it's at 24framescast and of course don't forget to come over the blog at 24framescast.blogspot.com many thanks and i'll be in contact soon bye Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames cast and the second part of our James Bond retrospective from Russia with love. Doctor No had been a huge worldwide success and had really led to the birth of a new genre in film and television, the super spy. I hypothesised in the Doctor No episode as to why Doctor No had been such a hit and, and concluded that it was a classic case of right time and right place. It seemed to tap into the newfound optimism in Britain after almost a decade of the country being in the doldrums after World War II. Bond seemed to have an almost universal appeal both to men and women, but also he was able to be both anti-authoritarian and acceptable to the establishment. Good-looking, well-pruned and borderline sociopathic, Bond was a character that prompted intrigue and adulation. Connery of course fitted the role perfectly, delivering the lines with a laconic and jovial tone and of course complemented with a heavy dose of charisma. Now sequels at the time were not as common as they are now. We are kind of in the age whereby as soon as a film makes some money you will no doubt hear in the coming weeks after it that a sequel and a prequel have already been greenlit. However at the time 
direct sequels to films were quite rare events. In Britain you had things like the Ealing comedies which were kind of a very specific brand but they didn't necessarily follow on from each other. So when the film became a massive success, Broccoli and Saltzman were able to secure funding quite quickly for the next instalment from United Artists, who doubled the budget from $1 million to $2 million, and it doesn't seem like a massive leap given how much of a success the film was, but it was still a significantly larger investment that had been made before, and of course made all the less risky by the fact that there was already an audience who wanted to see more James Bond. Why I think From Russia With Love succeeds so well is because From Russia With Love feels like a bigger film, but it doesn't just kind of times everything that worked in Doctor No by 10. Instead, it feels more like an evolution and shows a gradual escalation. If Doctor No was a detective film, then From Russia With Love feels like a spy film in a more classical sense. The story continues on from Doctor No, but is also, you know, in itself, a self-contained story. Spectre, who were reeling from the death of Dr. No, hatch a plan to steal a Russian lector machine, a, an encryption machine much like the German Enigma from World War II. Spectre's number one, or Blofeld, is the unseen head of the organisation, and an instructs newly defected Smirsch agent, Rosa Kleb, played by Lotz Liena, to trick Tatiana Romanov, played by Daniela Bianchi, a Russian consulate worker in Istanbul, who has access to a lector device, trick her into thinking that she's working for Mother Russia and must feign love of James Bond in order to encoax the intrepid agent into thinking that she wants to defect and give them a lector device. After which, Spectre will intercept Tatiana and Bond, take the lector machine for themselves and exact revenge on Bond for the death of Dr. No. Of course, MI6 think there is something fishy about Tatiana's apparent defection and seemingly unbridled love of Bond, but they dispatch him nonetheless to find out what is going on. Now of course returning to the idea that From Russia Love simply doesn't times everything by a factor of 10, what you get is still the kind of measured control of the previous film, but tantalising glimpses into a bigger Bond universe. This film sees the first appearance of Desmond Llewellyn as Q, and just think about how big and ridiculous the gadgets get later on in Bond, but here you have something fairly innocuous looking in the case of a briefcase, and contained within the briefcase there is a knife, some tear gas, and some other devices to help him. And what I absolutely love about the scene in which Q gives Bond this briefcase is that you know at some stage in the film Bond is going to have to use this and it almost became um, a guessing game with me to see when the situation would arise that we would be able to utilise the hidden gadgets within the briefcase. Again, it seemed quite an innocuous gadget, just a kind of basic looking briefcase. But again, I can imagine at the time it was an incredibly exciting scene to see. And you would kind of imagine kind of children walking around with their father's briefcases pretending that they were James Bond. We also have one of the first real Bond baddies in Killing Machine, Red Grant, played by Robert Shaw, who is going to be dispatched to intercept the Lecter device and kill Bond. There is a brilliant opening sequence in which we see him tracking down a guy wearing a James Bond mask and killing him 
before some lights turn on and we see it's part of a training exercise on the brilliantly named Spectre Island. I also love the way Kleb goes to Spectre Island and assesses whether or not Grant is up to the mission before placing a set of knuckle dusters on him, simply punching him as hard as he can, hard as she can in the back and he doesn't even flinch. It reminds me of Drago a little bit in Rocky IV. Whereas Dr. No had a kind of huge evil plot to bring down American rockets with a nuclear-powered device, the MacGuffin, as it were, in From Russia With Love is something quite mundane almost with this lector device. It's the size of a kind of typewriter, but it actually feels strangely more believable than what we see in Dr. No. We can kind of imagine that it was these types of devices that would be of great value to an organisation like MI6 to help with the Cold War. But that's not to say the film doesn't have its slightly more fantastical elements. When Bond goes to Istanbul, he he, he meets up with Ali Karim Bey, who is the um, MI6 leader in Istanbul. And they travel underneath the uh, city's uh, underground reservoirs to the Russian embassy, where he has actually installed a periscope in the embassy, which they can spy on those inside. And it is one of the most ridiculous scenes I've ever seen. It has, it is actually a genuine periscope from a submarine, and they're able to move it round the room and look who's in there. How on earth the people in the room don't actually notice that there's a periscope sticking up through the floor really kind of beggars belief. I mean, you know, you can imagine them looking for bugs, but they don't actually see the fact that there's a huge periscope sticking up through the floor. But of course, this is James Bond, and we have to kind of. I suppose, embrace the silliness sometimes rather than pick holes in it. Of course, Istanbul, again, it's a kind of a foreign country, which, although in Europe, I can can still imagine it being a place that not many people had visited and would still hold a kind of charm to it. But the film does kind of take in the exotic again when Bond and Karim Bey go to a gypsy camp. And when they arrive, two women are being brought out to... I think fights to the death over the love of a man. However, these aren't the kind of haggard-looking gypsies as you uh, may expect. They are two absolutely beautiful ones, and they are forced to kind of fight for the entertainment of Bond and everyone else before some Russians turn up and an almighty gunfight takes place. But the action doesn't stop there. With Once Bond has met up with Tatiana, they plan to escape Istanbul with Karim Bey on the Orient Express, And it's here, I think, that the film really kind of tapped into my inner film geek. It actually reminded me of films like Carol Reed's Night Train to Munich and Alfred Hitchcock's The Lady Vanishes. If you think about the kind of the confines of a train, you may expect the film to kind of slow down or become quite boring, but in fact it actually doesn't. The uh, tension that is created in these moments is up there with anything you'll see in the series. And of course, it is on the train. And I won't spoil it for you that Bond eventually gets to utilise his Q's ingenious briefcase. But the action doesn't stop there, and indeed, you could almost read into parallels with North by Northwest as Bond is chased over some hills by some helicopters. And in obviously this being in the age of kind of CGI and huge effects, Terence Young really, I think, creates a great deal of actual danger and tension through some brilliant editing and rapid camera movements. All of this works towards a powerboat chase and it has some real kind of trailer moments with Bond 
blowing up some of the boats with a flare gun. And again, I kind of come back to what I was talking about in Doctor No, in that this really does seem like something unique and incredibly fresh if you were part of that contemporary audience. I remember my father telling me how him and his friends went to go and see From Russia With Love and they hadn't really ever seen huge explosions before. And of course it seems kind of, I suppose, fairly tame by today's standards, but on the big screen, seeing a kind of row of boats explode had a tremendous impact on him and his friends. And to know when you left the cinema that there was going to be more made the wait between films for him excruciating as a young man. I think credit also has to go to Terence Young. You can tell as a director he is far more confident with the Bond character and the world and handling the various set pieces and sequences in the film. Doctor No felt, I would say, quite businesslike in its execution. It's a very slick, crisp film. From Russia With Love, I think, shows him becoming more confident in letting Bond be Bond and doing what he does, such as in the kind of the, the gunfight at the gypsy camp. Young doesn't over-edit the sequence to pieces. He simply lets it play out and we get to kind of see how skilled a fighter Bond is. Peter Hunt also returned for editing duties, as did cinematographer Ted Moore. And if you're doing a franchise like this, I think it kind of makes perfect sense to bring the same people back who are used to working with each other, who know what each other want. And it kind of must save so much time in learning what makes each other tick. This was also the first time really we had a full John Barry score. And it is, I think, a wonderful score. And there was, I think, a definite romance to From Russia With Love, which Barry is able to encapsulate so well. It seems almost harsh to say that From Russia With Love is a better film than Doctor No because I enjoyed Doctor No so much, but I think it is an immensely successful film in what it tries to achieve. It continues the story of Bond versus Spectre. It expands the Bond world. There is a kind of real-life context to it now with the Cold War between Russia and the West, and I think it also develops the character. We are beginning, I think, to kind of see Connery settle into the role and bring some more personal touches to it. And crucially, I feel like there is a lot more to know about Bond at the end of this film. I think you want to see the next film so you can kind of find out a few more personal touches about the character. From Russia With Love was, again, a massive box office success. And of course, with all franchises, it is the law of diminishing returns. However, not with the case of Bond, with a wealth of novels to mine, from Ian Fleming. There were many more tales to tell. And of course, the next film would arguably be even better. And that would, of course, be Goldfinger. And that's going to be it for this episode of the 24 Framescast. If you want to email me, it's 24framescast at gmail.com. You can visit the blog at 24framescast.blogspot.com and you can follow me on Twitter at 24framescast. Many thanks for listening and I'll be in contact soon. Bye. He's the man, the man.
beckons you to enter his web of sin. My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames cast and on today's episode I'll be continuing the James Bond retrospective with a look at Goldfinger. I think you have to admire Saltzman and Broccoli as producers because after you produce two back-to-back successes with Dr. No and From Russia With Love, the temptation may have been to stick with the tried and tested formula that was proving so successful or there could even be a temptation to radically alter the direction and tone and style of Bond and instead the pair obviously went for a series of measured improvements and expansions on the bedrock that had been laid in the first two films. Goldfinger feels like a far bigger film than either Doctor No and From Russia With Love and we have the the origins of the Bond films that will follow and that we are familiar with now. We get Q now in his workshop. We have the Aston Martin with all its added extras. We have the innuendo-laden dialogue and witty one-liners. We have a more feisty Bond girl in the form of Pussy Galore played by Anna Blackman. The pre-credit Bond mission also makes its first appearance. We are introduced to the first Bond supervillain in the form of Goldfinger played by Gert Frobe and his audacious plan to raid Fort Knox and destabilise the world's gold market. Of course, along with Goldfinger, we have the iconic Oddjob and his evil henchmen, complete with his armour-plated top hat used for cutting statues in half or, or killing assailants. It's a film that also has some of the most iconic moments in the entire franchise. The image of Jill Matheson covered in gold lying dead on a bed or Bond strapped to a table with a laser beam pointed at his privates. Its opening theme tune sung by Shirley Bassey is one of the most popular and indeed recognisable of all Bond themes. But we also have some welcome additions back to the franchise. Ken Adam makes a return for some truly awe-inspiring set work. And it also has the largest budget of any Bond film, 3 million which was as much as both Doctor No and From Russian With Love combined. And crucially, it would also go on to be the franchise's biggest hit again. So what is this one actually all about? Well, Bond is enjoying his holiday in Miami on Her Majesty's budget when Felix Leider from the CAA informs him that the real reason he has been checked in is to keep tabs on fellow guest Ernst Goldfinger whom MI6 believe is part of a vast gold smuggling ring in Europe. After seducing his pretend girlfriend Jill, Bond is knocked out and shocked to discover Jill covered in gold paint and dead. Back in London, M informs him that he has to pose as a gold smuggler and find out what on earth Goldfinger is up to. And sure enough, Bond uncovers Goldfinger's master plan, Operation Grand Slam, to disrupt world gold prices by nuking Fort Knox with the help of the Chinese government. Perhaps it is because that this Bond film was really the first of a new type of Bond film with the supervillain and the, I guess, kind of slightly more sexually charged Bond. It is often 
cited by fans of this franchise and by critics alike to be the best James Bond film. I wouldn't necessarily agree with that, and we will, I will do a wrap-up show on these films, but for me anyway, it was definitely the most enjoyable of the three films today. I laughed out loud a lot. I was completely and utterly gripped by the story, and what kind of surprised me about was I must have seen Goldfinger about 10, 15 times, and I was absolutely on edge, and I think the success of the film, although kind of multifaceted, and I will try and get into some of these reasons whilst I'm over the course of this episode, I think one of the biggest influences on the film is the change of director in the fact that Guy Hamilton was brought in to direct this one. He'd actually turned down the first two Bond films and was actually brought in because Terence Young had left to go and direct another project. And his influence on the screenplay especially was absolutely massive. And I also think he had quite a lot in common with Ian Fleming. He too was a former naval intelligence officer during the war. And he wanted to make Bond far more vulnerable by creating a villain who was as powerful, if not more. And the idea would be that we would feel the peril and the potential for Bond to be harmed a lot more. And I think, obviously, that kind of direction pays dividends in the scene where he is strapped to the table with the laser pointing at him. And also, Hamilton, I think, had an understanding of the fact that the novels were a lot more fantastical, perhaps, than audiences would actually accept. And he did insist on a number of changes. Most notably, in the novel, Goldfinger's plan is to steal all the gold. And Fleming worked out that this plan was fundamentally flawed. And it was actually one of the main criticisms of the book, and still is actually, that it would take absolutely weeks for him to get the gold out of Fort Knox. And it's actually, there's a throwaway line in the film from Bond who kind of makes reference to the fact that his plan is slightly flawed. And he changed this kind of robbery to the idea that Goldfinger was just going to nuke uh, Fort Knox to change the price of gold. And I think it's a change for the better. We often kind of moan when films um, deviate too much from source novels, but in this case I think it's a pretty good uh, move on the part of Hamilton. And indeed, I do think it is a slightly more realistic proposition to actually kind of stealing the gold and driving off of it. Overall, though, I do think that Goldfinger is a lot better directed than the other two films. And that's not to say I don't think Terence Young's a very good director, but it feels a lot more stylistic. In particular, the um, film's opening shows a massive aerial shot kind of slowly getting closer to the hotel where Bond's staying. And there's this moment where we kind of see a girl about to jump off a diving board and it instantly cuts to her arriving in the water. Now, obviously, it's a fairly kind of, I suppose, simple piece of direction, but... It, to me anyway, I think, felt a lot more stylistic than what Young had actually been doing. And there's a few other little moments, especially when um, Bond and M are speaking to a banker from the Bank of England, and they're having a um, dinner and brandy, and the camera just tracks back along the table. And again, I, I, although it kind of calls attention to itself through the movement, I still think it's kind of, I think it's far more distinctive than what I have been used to. And it's a shot that he actually uses again in the film when Bond stops on a corner of a road in Switzerland to see what Goldfinger has stopped for and the camera tracks back and we see Jill's sister Tilly pointing a sniper rifle and we're not actually sure whether she's pointing it at Bond and is in fact on the payroll of Goldfinger or she's trying to shoot Goldfinger. But whatever, I think it's a nice little reveal that 
acts to highlight the fact that Bond is vulnerable in the film. And of course there is the infamous moment where Bond is strapped to the table with the laser pointing at him. And what I love about this scene is the fact that there is absolutely no way he can get out of it. There's no kind of clever sleight of hand he can use to get his hands free. He is going to die unless he thinks of something pretty quickly. And in this case, it's Bond's um, knowledge of Operation Grand Slam that saves him from being cut in half. Ted Moore is still on cinematography duty along with the editor Peter Hunt. Now, Moore had actually won a BAFTA for his work on From Russia With Love, and when I actually found that out, I wasn't entirely surprised, because I do think it is a uh, really beautiful film to look at, and Goldfinger is certainly following in the in the vein of Bond films looking great. It is a lot brighter, I think, Goldfinger, which perhaps has something to do with the uh, the subject matter. For this type of film, bearing in mind it's an, you know, an action film, kind of, I think sometimes, especially by today's standards, many kind of genre films kind of suffer at least because they look exactly the same. I think Hamilton clearly got the team really working at the top of its game. It is a very sleek film and there is not an ounce of wasted screen time. The script was polished and worked on by three writers and at an hour and 40 minutes it has so much story and so much action. I was kind of reminded how bloated modern action films have become, you know, with kind of two hour plus running times, which you kind of don't really need. And Goldfinger, I think, delivers in its running time a really tight, engaging story. Connery too is absolutely fantastic in the film, and I think he is aided really by a pretty top-notch script and some great directorial touches, which I think really kind of add to that suave sophistication we know and love in Bond. The opening pre-title credit sequence, we see him change out of a wetsuit, having just planted a bomb into a pristine white tuxedo. We obviously have the now infamous moment where he throws an electric heater into a bath and sardonically says, shocking, afterwards. And also I think there's a real kind of genuine sense of guilt and anger over the death of Jill. M does remind him that he isn't on a personal mission of revenge. Of course, that is a storyline we will see later on, but... It's kind of this idea that I think there's a slight edge to Bond in this film and a real sense that Connery has got to grips with the character and is becoming more and more comfortable with how far he can push Bond. The dialogue at times is absolutely hilarious. There's a scene when just after Bond has been seducing Jill, Felix rings him and Bond casually says something big came up as to why he couldn't meet him. The treatment of women in the film is fairly abysmal, yet utterly hilarious. In our modern political correct times, people will perhaps look at this film with absolute shock at how Bond treats the ladies, but I don't know, perhaps it's because I am very immature when it comes to things like this. I was absolutely howling with laughter when he kind of just slaps a girl on the arse and tells her to go away. Saltzman and Broccoli were trying to appeal to a more... American audience in the film and that's why I think you kind of get little references from Bond which perhaps seem a little bit out of place. He makes a um, throwaway comment that he likes listening to the Beatles and I kind of already, I think I already had him as a kind of a Dean Martin Burt Bacharach fan but whatever you know if they are trying to kind of appeal to Americans this would certainly be something which I think would strike a chord with the contemporary audience. Above all, though, I think the film's crowning glory is the sense of fun that you get out of watching it. 
it is of course completely ridiculous and Goldfinger, Pussy Galore, I mean they're kind of absolutely ridiculous names and characters but for some reason they just work incredibly well. I had great fun again and I, although I said I've seen the film a number of times, when you see Q talking through the added extras on the Aston Martin, it was the uh, guessing game of when Bond is going to get to try them out. Again, Goldfinger and Oddjob are a hilarious duo. The golf scene especially is absolutely hilarious to watch because we kind of think that Bond has got the upper hand throughout, but as the kind of final moments of that scene play out, we realise that Goldfinger's been more than his match for the entire time, and when Oddjob crushes the golf ball in his hand, I think there is a genuine sense on Bond's part that he is kind of slightly worried as to what the pair could actually do to him. On the black one as well, I think is a new type of Bond girl because she kind of gives what she gets, but in the end she can't really kind of hold off the approaches of Bond anymore. And going back to that kind of treatment of women, I'm not entirely sure whether their kind of first lovemaking scene is necessarily um, either very romantic or it's actually statutory rape. But whatever, she falls for the guy's charms. But she has a kind of uh, an attitude to her which I think makes her a lot more interesting than the bimbos we will get later on. Got to love the work of Ken Adams. Goldfinger's uh, country retreat where he has his uh, racehorse training goes from being a snooker room and bar to this kind of war room complete with a massive scale model of Fort Knox. It's utterly ridiculous but it's completely brilliant and of course it's actually happening in front of your eyes. It's not like some kind of cheap special effect. We are actually seeing the room change for real. I think John Barry's score is absolutely note perfect and the opening theme again, it's kind of goosebump inducing with that opening riff and you know I was watching the BBC Proms last night and when they were playing that in the Royal Albert Hall you could kind of sense the kind of palpable excitement from the crowd at just hearing those opening bars. But also going back to the idea of the fact that Bond gives you something new for contemporary audiences, I love the credit sequence during the film. Now, it wasn't actually a Maurice Brander one, it was uh, Robert Brownjohn who was on duty here. And what he actually does is project scenes from the film to come onto the naked gold bodies of models. And I was really kind of taken with it. And I, I again, I put myself in the position of that audience in the 60s seeing it and seeing these snippets from the film and kind of building the anticipation. It's kind of revolutionary, really. And we, we see it a lot in TV shows, especially one of the things I used to hate about Battlestar Galactica was that kind of just before the opening credits had begun, you'd get this kind of micro-condensed preview of what was to follow. It was completely unnecessary and incredibly annoying because I used to sort of think, well, why are you showing me what's about to happen? But in the case of this, you just see tiny little snippets to whet the appetite and create added excitement. One of the things I think that really kind of amazed me the more I kind of read about the film was the fact that Connery never actually set foot in America, despite the fact that the vast majority was filmed in England. I don't think you can ever tell um, that is the case. I've seen a lot of films from the early 60s where, I don't know, set in somewhere like Africa, and it's just all rear projection work, and it, it's abysmal. You can so tell they're on a stage somewhere in Hampshire that it really kind of takes you out of the film, but in Goldfinger, I never ever kind of felt like this again, and perhaps it was this targeting specifically of the American audience. Goldfinger would be an absolutely colossal hit, $120 million worldwide. And 
I think it kind of sees the departure of Bond as being this little British oddity to a truly global star and a sense of ownership from audiences all over the world. He may well be British, but I think Goldfinger is the film that kind of makes him a true man of the world. Surely you would think then that the bubble would burst, that audiences would become bored or simply a little bit uninterested in the further adventures of Bond. Well, as the next film, Thunderball, will prove, Bond could only get bigger, and in my mind, even better. And that's going to be it for this episode of the 24 Framescast. Um, If you want to email me, it's 24framescast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at 24framescast. And don't forget to check out the blog, 24framescast.blogspot.com. I will be back with you hopefully next week and an episode on a film that I think may have just worked itself into my top 10 of all time. So do check the feed next week. Many thanks. Bye. Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames cast and this is going to be the next instalment in the James Bond retrospective with a look at Thunderball. When I first saw Thunderball about two years ago I wasn't particularly keen on the film and having watched again it quite recently as part of this retrospective um, I can safely say that I am even less keen on it than I was before. The reasons for which I will delve into a little bit deeper in a bit but before I kind of begin kind of tucking into why I kind of don't like this film very much I'm going to talk a little bit about the controversy surrounding the film. Now, I suppose if you want a more in-depth look at this, I would recommend checking out the Hollywood Saloon's James Bond retrospective, which is complete with a rather amusing alarm for a chap called Kevin McClory. Now, McClory and writer Jack Whittingham wrote Thunderball as a screenplay, which then Ian Fleming turned into a novel, which was again then adapted for the screen by Richard Mayburn and John Hopkins. There was a court case between uh, McClure and Fleming and basically the film was shelved for a number of years whilst the rights issues were sorted out and eventually um, McClure would come on board as the producer of this film. This is actually not a Southman and Rocky produced film, they were executive producers but it was actually produced by Kevin McClure. It does however see the return of Terence Young on director's duty. It would, this would be his uh, last Bond film he would actually direct and of course Ted Moore would come back as director of photography and this would also be the first Bond film that was shot in Cinemascope. Peter Hunt returns for editing, John Barry and of course Maurice Bender returns for the opening title sequences. So what is this one actually all about? Well, Spectre are back with a plan to hold the world to ransom by stealing a nuclear bomber and taking the warheads off it and threatening to blow up two cities unless 100 million pounds in diamonds is paid to them. With the clock ticking, Bond must travel to the Bahamas where he discovers Spectre No. 2, Emilio Largo, and Mistress Domino, the brother of Francois Drevel, a military attaché who was due to be on the Vulcan flight. 
who Spectre had murdered and swapped with a plastic surgery copy. Can Bond convince Domino to give up Largo and save the world? Well, of course he can, but boy, does Thunderball take its time getting there. Film length doesn't necessarily bother me. I absolutely love epics. Plunk me in front of Lawrence of Arabia or Dr. Zhivago, something like that, and I will be happy for three and a half hours, as long as I've got a few beers or some wine to kind of see me through. But what I can't stand in films is padding, where you have scenes that are for no other reason other than to tell the story in the most tedious way possible. And unfortunately, Thunderball is riddled with moments like this and that are even more annoying because when you kind of really look at them, they completely undermine the script and seem to display a complete and total abandonment of logic. Before I kind of really get stuck into why I think this might be, I think we have to kind of look at the production of Thunderball. Obviously, it's kind of had a number of writers and it's been kind of in production development hell for a while, but this was, without doubt, the biggest Bond film yet. The budget rocketed up to, I think, between 10 and 13 million dollars, which is way more than the other films, which kind of showed this kind of gradual increase in budget and scale. And with McClurry on board producing, I think he was absolutely determined to throw as much money at the screen as he possibly could. Now, everything in the film is wrapped up to a factor of 10. And it does have some absolutely fantastic set pieces. The underwater finale with various kind of Spectre agents and American, I think they're CIA agents, kind of fighting with harpoon guns is absolutely incredible. It is a really kind of unique moment. And, you know, I've, I've said it a number of times in this retrospective that going to see a Bond film for the contemporary audience, you would have always got something quite new and unique. And I think that's certainly one of the things I, I do like about the film. And also you have some kind of like iconic bomb moments. There's certainly part where he fires a harpoon gun through someone and then says, I think he got the point. But for all the good that's in the film, I think it is undermined by the laconic storytelling and the rather bland direction. So what is actually wrong about the story and why do I actually think it's a little bit stupid? Well, the first half hour of the film takes place at a health farm where M has sent Bond to recuperate and get back into shape. He also happens to be there at the exact time Spectre's Count Lippy is there plotting the Vulcan bomb theft and switching of Domino's brother with the group's body double, who's wrapped in bandages recovering from surgery under the auspices of being in an accident. Now, I suppose the scene is kind of quite entertaining, it's quite funny. We have the obligatory moment of Bond statutory raping one of the women who works at there, but when you really kind of boil it down, this entire sequence is completely pointless. It exists purely so that Bond can recognise a picture of Domino and then go to Nassau to try and find her. The film's premise really is a ticking clock story. It demands tension. Goldfinger had it. It's one of the things I mentioned on that show. I really kind of felt the peril and the innate drama of the story. And Thunderball really should have that type of tension to it, but it actually doesn't because scenes like this kind of opening just kind of drag out getting to the real kind of meat of the story and the way in which Spectre kind of steal this bomber and then land it in the scene, it's a brilliant scene but 
The whole thing could have been done so much more economically if you had actually kind of started the film with the theft and the plane landing in the sea and the bombs being taken off it, and then Bond going to the briefing with M and the other double O's to kind of start trying to kind of piece together what Spectre are up to and trying to find out where they are. The whole thing could have just been kind of thrown away by M in one line, which was something like, I don't fishermen saw the plane flying low over the sea and they tracked its trajectory and it would have landed in the sea somewhere near Nacelle and obviously kind of as Bond's the uh, the best double O he's going to be sent there to try and kind of find out what's going on but instead we have to kind of sit through this rather boring half an hour in the hell farm and then we kind of go to the situation room and then Bond is sent off to try and meet up with Domino and it just feels like the film is wasting time. There is no impetus or really exploiting the inherent drama that the situation entails. And the problem with the film is that I think kind of Terence Young also has to kind of take some of the criticism because his direction never really kind of feels like it's focusing on the story. There are so many kind of cutaways that, especially in this kind of Mardi Gras sequence, where we kind of keep cutting to the parade and even during the final kind of underwater battle there'll be this kind of harpoon guns flying across the screen and suddenly he'll cut to a knife falling past an eel or something like that and it just kind of really I think takes away the momentum of the film and you know there's another sequence as well where Bond goes and photographs uh, Largo's boat from underwater and then strolls out onto the beach and onto the road and he just happens to come across um, a lady driving called Fiona who is also part of Spectre, actually kind of a hitman for them. And we have this entire kind of pointless scene of her driving really, really fast back to his hotel where he ends up obviously kind of seducing her and then getting double crossed, etc, etc. And again, it's completely redundant, just wasting screen time. We like seeing, I suppose, I suppose the idea might have been that the fact that we kind of like, we like seeing Bond kind of seduce the women in this one. There's kind of a bit of a, a kind of a, a twist on it because this woman gets the better of him but all in all I'm just kind of sat there thinking come on just get on with finding the bombs and stopping the plot the film's finale as well which takes place on a, on a speedboat I don't know how much you can kind of um, point the finger at Terence Young here but he overcranks the footage so much that it's almost ridiculous to watch this kind of punch up that's clearly kind of speeded up it looks like kind of footage you see of World War One where suddenly you see someone kind of walk along and two frames skip and they're kind of five metres in front of where they started off from and it's I think completely jarring. I know it's kind of a technique used quite a lot of the time because obviously they didn't have kind of the special effects that we do now and they did kind of film things practically but to kind of speed things up in this way I don't think it ever works and it ever looks good and dare I say it, I really think it kind of dates Thunderball. But all this kind of negativity I'm having towards them, there are a few things in it I like. The opening, well I suppose the pre title sequence is absolutely brilliant and I remember when I kind of first watched Thunderbolt and watching it again the pre-title sequence is so good that I think it kind of really kind of highlights for me how kind of how far the film drops off as it kind of runtimes continue and what you kind of see in the the, uh, the pre-title sequence is this kind of really brutal fight which it doesn't have any of the overcranking that the uh, the final finale does and Bond obviously makes his escape on a jetpack and that is a real stunt. I mean obviously there's a kind of cutaway which is some rear projection work but you actually see someone fly off and uh, land on the road on a jetpack and it's completely cool. I mean, you know, God knows that's something I hate. You know, 
hasn't been seen before or since. And obviously, I think um, the work Maurice Bender does on the opening sequence is brilliant. I love the Tom Jones song as well, and Barry's score is you know, pretty brilliant throughout. I think having Ken Adams back as well um, on kind of art direction duty really, really kind of, I think, kind of ups the ante of the film's visual style. The situation room in which kind of um, M and the other double O's are in is absolutely brilliant. It's kind of like a massive Edwardian office and it must have the highest ceilings I've ever seen in all my life. And of course, there's a kind of a tapestry that pulls up to show a massive map. It's absolutely brilliant stuff. And of course, the banter with Q, I think, is quite brilliant in this film. It's, it's really funny because Q actually comes out to see Bond, so he's actually kind of on location. But there's a brilliant interplay between them. You can tell, obviously, kind of Luen and Connery are far more comfortable with each other and kind of... It really, the dialogue really kind of sizzles in these moments. And of course, the underwater battle, absolutely brilliant. Although I do have to kind of question why the Americans didn't just hover a helicopter above the water and just shoot the divers. But anyway, obviously that would kind of be far more boring than what they actually kind of came up with at the end. And the, the, the speedboat chase at the end, is, it, it, it's pretty amazing because the boat actually transforms and a catamaran come, comes zooming out of it. It looks stunning and, you know, obviously I think you can tell that um, it's actually a boat, this isn't some kind of of model work. But at over two hours, I think Thunderball far outstays its welcome. Its story doesn't need to be that long and I think it does really feel bloated and overdone. And I think it's a kind of a, a, really a kind of a, a perfect example of bigger not actually eating better. But saying that, the film was a massive success. In fact, this was the biggest Bond yet, $140 million in tickets. Now that is an absolute staggering amount. I think in adjusted, it comes in just under a billion dollars. So obviously it was absolutely colossal. So really, you have to feel for Salsam Broccoli because they were not the producers in this one. Obviously kind of McClurry was. And you can imagine that leaving a quite kind of bitter taste in the mouth, kind of not being uh, able to benefit the most from the most popular film but you know obviously kind of Kevin McClure is a figure who will uh, return in a few years I don't know whether or not I'm going to look at Never Say Never Again ironically as a kid I used to watch that film on repeat and I think it was probably my favourite Bond film until I obviously kind of grew up and uh, became a little bit wiser but I think really when I kind of like conclude as to kind of Thunderball I think it's a film which obviously had a kind of a very um, troubled production history obviously with all the lawsuits and the various writers and I think it was a kind of a film that kind of just feels like it's trying to hit too many home runs and in the end just kind of fails in the basis that it doesn't really kind of keep sight of the central storyline. And also I think you have to kind of sort of see that these films were being made year after the year after year and I just think Bond needed to take a couple of years off which is exactly what they did because it would be another two years before You Only Live Twice would come out, which would come also with a new director, Lewis Gilbert. And I can safely say that it is one of my favourite Bond films, and I will be talking about it hopefully next week, because it's certainly been a real pleasure going back and seeing this one again. Right, that's going to be it for this episode of the 24 Frames cast. I will be in contact shortly. Many thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. Bye.
My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames cast and this is going to be the next episode of the James Bond retrospective with a look at You Only Live Twice. After the last episode on Thunderball, I received a number of emails from listeners who were absolutely, I would say almost disgusted that I hadn't actually enjoyed the film a great deal. And contained within those emails were a number of incredibly good points and I kind of emailed everyone back who had, who had written to me and sort of said it's the kind of like really the, um, I suppose one of the, the great things about the Bond franchise is that you can kind of debate and compare the films against each other and what you will find is many of the points that are raised are completely valid and they actually kind of do kind of change your opinion slightly but in the case of Thunderball I'm kind of really going to really stick to my kind of take on it in that I really kind of didn't enjoy the film and of course one of the things that I've kind of highlighted as being one of the reasons why perhaps it didn't really appeal to me a great deal was the fact that it wasn't a broccoli and salesman produced film in the strictest sense and with You Only Live Twice there was a kind of a hiatus on the Bond franchise there was kind of one coming out once every year and in, with this one I actually waited a couple of years before I got this new one out and I think that having broccoli and salesman back on board the franchise kind of found its feet again with you, you Only Live Twice. Now, many people say that this is actually their favourite Bond film, and although it isn't mine, I would say it is definitely up there, and I will do a um, wrap-up show at the end of this uh, retrospective in which I do kind of go through my top ten and what my favourite ones, but You Only Live Twice would be pretty high up there. Now, it was, of course, supposed to be the last film with Connery as Bond, and of course it wouldn't be because he comes back in um, Diamonds of Forever and later on Never Say Never Again. I'm still, I haven't made up my mind or not whether I'm going to do Never Say Never Again. It's, I, I think for completest reasons I might have to, but I am, I'm kind of dreading going back to it because I think I might say in the last episode it was a film I absolutely loved as a kid and I, I'm kind of disgusted with myself at the moment because I realised the other day I've actually seen films like The Phantom Menace more times than I've seen films like Raging Bull which I've only ever watched once about 12 years ago and I absolutely loved it. I own it on DVD and I have never gone back to it and I don't know why and for some reason the thought of wasting time watching Never Say Never Again and not watching Raging Bull troubles me a great deal and obviously to amend that I will have to watch Raging Bull again but just the mere fact that I've probably seen that a lot more than I have uh, Martin Scorsese's masterpiece does kind of play on my mind a little bit but to get back on track, you know, obviously this was going to be the last film for Connery and I think you could perhaps say that there was a um, a sense that this one had to be a pretty great film to keep the franchise going and of course it is and I think it would be the first of three films directed by Lewis Gilbert who would be kind of I suppose his Bond films would have a rather epic grandiose take to them. Um, Peter Hunt of course returns on editing duties, John Barry back as always. And I think one of the most notable additions to the crew is Freddie Young as Director of Photography. And I only um, knew that one just before I watched the film again and I was doing a bit of research. And I think Freddie Young is possibly one of my favourite Director of Photographies of all time. I absolutely love his work. I am a huge fan of the films of David Lean. And I think he was one of the first kind of Directors of Photography whose name I recognised um, probably after I watched uh, Lawrence of Arabia, I kind of made a conscious effort to seek more of his work out. And I think 
I think one of the things I would definitely say about You Only Live Twice, it is perhaps my favourite looking of all the Bond films, and I think we kind of really have to attribute that to the work of Young in it. And one of the most interesting, I think, aspects of this film, it was that it was actually written by the celebrated children's author, Roald Dahl. Now, it is only very loosely based on Fleming's novel, and I think it does have that kind of Roald Dahl rather... Uh, dark sense of humour. There are a few uh, death by piranhas in this film and I, feel, I, I felt that was a very kind of roll doll touch. It's of course the first time we get to see Spectre number one Blofeld played by Donald Pleasance. Slightly, I think, um, underwhelming perhaps, but nevertheless you know, we do actually get to see his face having it been teased for the past few films. The real star of this film is of course, Ken Adam. Now, he was given a budget on this, which I think actually kind of exceeded that of uh, Dr. No and From Russia With Love combined. And when you see Spectre's headquarters, I mean, it's completely ridiculous, you know, they're, they're hollowed out volcano, if you kind of think about it on any kinds of practical level, but to actually see a helicopter land through a set is, you don't get that anymore. And I think that is why I kind of love this film as a kind of a historical document to kind of good old-fashioned practical filmmaking. So anyway, what is this one actually all about? Well, if you're familiar with the story of Dr. No, then You Only Live Twice will be quite familiar, if with a somewhat larger budget. During the pre-title sequence, we see an American spacecraft gobbled up by another larger one. The Americans blame the Soviets, and the Soviets send one of theirs up, and it meets a similar fate. This time, however, the stakes are raised when the Americans announce that they are playing another launch, and if the same thing happens, it's going to be war. The British think there may be something up and dispatch Bond to Japan where they believe the craft has come down. Working with the Japanese Secret Service and the head of the organisation, the brilliantly named Tiger Tanaka, and his private army of ninjas, Bond discovers that the real enemy is in fact Spectre, headed of course by Blofeld with the aid of a no-named foreign superpower, or China, and they plan to start World War III and a new age of world domination. Discovering the spacecraft eating rockets flying out of a hollowed out volcano, Bond and the ninjas must break in and stop Spectre from attacking an American spacecraft in orbit and avert the two superpowers from destroying each other in a war. When comparing You Only Live Twice to the previous four films, you can clearly see echoes of all of the films in them, both good and bad. It is perhaps, in my mind, the tipping point with Bond, the moment Southman and Broccoli began on a path that removes any sense of reality from the Bond universe. And I don't necessarily think this might be a good thing. You know, there was, I suppose, to definitely the first two films, a kind of sense of reality. And I think that probably kind of comes down to, I, I perhaps even I'd say kind of budgetary constraints, but Goldfinger perhaps kind of begins to stray from the path and Thunderball, you know, there's an element of um, reality to it. Obviously, you know, Spectre is this kind of almost comic book type villain of an organisation. But You Only Live Twice, I think, just completely throws off the shackles. And I think what it does, it puts Bond very much in its own genre and, most crucially, in its own universe. It's a universe where people can buy and hollow out a volcano with absolutely no one taking any notice. And I think for me anyway, it's a relatively easy thing to get over. You just kind of go along with it that what you are watching is a kind of a fantasy. And by embracing these elements of the film, I think you really do begin to have fun with Bond. And in this department, I think You Only Live Twice delivers in spades. 
the first trump card is the setting. Now, before kind of with Thunderball, we were kind of in many locations. In this one, we kind of the whole film really takes place in Japan, and you know the crew actually went there to film as well. And I, I really think that makes a crucial difference in believing the film. The result is an absolute visual delight, and I am an absolute obsessive over Japanese gangster films of the 1960s. I absolutely love how they look, and when you have someone like Freddie Young coming into a foreign country, you get that kind of touristy kind of view, but it's one which I think when it's kind of coming through an artist like him, it makes Japan to be this incredibly visually stunning country, and I think when I was looking at the image, it reminded me a bit of kind of Akira Kurosawa's High and Low, and even Yajiro Ozu in the way in which he composes and frames the image with these kind of straight edges and layers them with a kind of foreground, middle ground and background. It's a very bright film and has a very clean, crisp look to it, and I dare say Young himself may have been influenced by many of the kind of Japanese films of the period. I did notice actually in the um, end credits that Toho Studios were credited with um, providing some of the facilities, and I noticed that uh, some further research they did kind of help with some of the crewing of the film. So it doesn't really surprise me a great deal that it does look kind of so visually familiar. Directorially, I think Lewis Gilbert really knocks the film out of the part. And when I complained about Terence Young in Thunderball, it was because at times I felt that possibly as well because of the screenplay, that the direction felt a little fat. Now, obviously I kind of commented on the kind of amount of time we get these kind of pointless cutaways or just constant mid-shots, and I just found the film to be very visually repetitive. But for all, it's kind of like, you know, huge set pieces. For me, some of the best scenes in this are kind of like when Bond uh, runs across a rooftop and we basically see this kind of huge punch-up he has where he just leaves a wake of kind of knocked-out gangsters. But rather than kind of cut into the scene, Gilbert just kind of floats the camera over the building. It's clearly a helicopter shot all in one take. And I absolutely just could not get enough of this type of direction. In another scene, Bond has a fight with an assailant who's using a, a uh, samurai sword. And I was really kind of reminded of those kind of punch-ups in the Casino Royale. And it just felt so visceral and genuinely scary that there was this kind of real danger to the scene which I didn't get out Thunderball. Crucially I kind of feel as well though, Bond is back. I think his kind of role in this film is, and I, I guess it might come back to the fact that this film does remind me a lot of Doctor No, but I actually think that he is kind of back to being an agent in many respects, trying to kind of figure out what is actually going on and kind of using those detective skills and you know, impersonating other people. Even at the start of the film, he actually fakes his own death so that he can kind of blend in a little bit better. But he seems to be playing an a far more active part in actually trying to solve what is going on. Thunderball, again, I just thought he was kind of like meandering around, kind of bumping into one situation and another one. And again, I think that's probably the reason why I found that film to be quite dull. One of the joys of the film is Bond's relationship with Tiger Tanaka. And they both share the rather middle-aged view of women, which is that even Tanaka goes so far to say that in their Japanese culture that women are behind men in the pecking order. And Bond kind of jokes that he could um, quite easily live in Japan. And I don't know, it almost seems um, a little bit too idealistic for Bond as we kind of see him being kind of massaged and bathed by beautiful women. But one thing I did kind of get out of the film was that Bond has um, several relationships with Japanese women in the film. and. 
yeah, these were still kind of conservative times really in the 60s. You know, interracial relationships were quite heavily frowned upon. I think it was probably worse for kind of white and black to be seen together. And I think, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it might have been um, Star Trek that was the first kind of kiss between uh, a white and a black person. But I still think this is kind of um, fairly racy stuff. And I, I, I kind of really do, I salute the, the filmmakers and the producers for kind of not making Bond to be this kind of little Englander. I think he is kind of really a kind of true uh, man of the world. But the film also does have, I think, some fantastic set pieces, of course. Um, Little Nelly, which is a kind of gyrocopter that um, Q brings out to Japan, is a brilliant sequence. And it's, uh, you know, we kind of see in kind of time lapse this uh, rather formidable little helicopter being built. And the coverage of a kind of a scene where Bond uh, takes out some um, pursuing helicopters is absolutely brilliant. The amount of coverage that is filmed is so impressive. And again, I think it's. You know, testament really to Gilbert's work, and I think perhaps um, you know, Terence Young, he, I don't know, I don't think he would have been able to kind of handle such a set piece as that. There's some other great stuff as well. A, uh, a pursuing car um, that's following Bond is picked up with a huge magnet by a Chinook helicopter and uh, summarily dumped at sea. There's no kind of interrogation or trial for the people on board. They are simply, uh, I, I assume, drowned. But um, you know, obviously, Japanese justice is quite swift. That being said though, I do have a few problems with You Only Live Twice. I think the middle third is pretty dull in a lot of respects. There is a pointless scene where Bond has to kind of get married in this kind of fake ceremony. It doesn't need to be there at all. And when he's at kind of Tiger Tanaka's um, training camp, there's a few kind of spectre attempts on his life. And it, I don't know if you necessarily need them. And yeah, you know, the whole kind of like the the ninja stuff is absolutely brilliant, but I don't think you need several of the scenes that are in there. They don't really kind of add any kind of danger. And also I think they kind of do make you kind of question the logic of the film. You know, how is it expected to know exactly where Bond is, yet don't actually seem to plan that well for his attack on the volcano. But you know, on a kind of a, a real kind of like common sense level, why are the Americans even putting another spacecraft up into orbit? You know, when we do actually speak, it's only like a two-man affair. It's like, you know, what what scientific reason that is that important that you could risk these people's lives is there to put another uh, spacecraft up there when, when there is this kind of danger? And also, obviously, if it's happened to the Soviets, and surely the Americans would be like, actually, do you know what? It might not be you. Let's actually kind of just kind of take stock for a while and kind of sit down and have a look at this. But of course not. You know, this is obviously we've got to kind of do it for drama and get another one up there so kind of Spectre can kind of bring it down, obviously to give the film some kind of kind of dramatic impetus. However, you do have to kind of take your health again to the volcano. It is so impressive. But I mean, come on, how on earth did they build it without anyone noticing? You know, a hollowed-out volcano. The the cost alone would be astronomical. But you know, to dump that much soil, surely someone would have seen it. But yeah, you know, never mind. It's as I said, this is kind of Bond. It's fantasy. It's it isn't reality, and that is what I think this film kind of really kind of makes you realise you're not watching anything that has any basis in the real world. And you know, as I've said, you've got to kind of get over these things. But the, the kind of the pernicketiness in me does kind of wonder how they did it. But you know, going back to the volcano, Ken Adam deserves a knighthood for it. It has a working monorail. It has rockets taking off, helicopters landing, and of course that final assault. You, when you see these ninjas abseiling down from the roof, it's absolutely breathtaking. 
And I mean, again, you don't see that in modern cinema. It would all be CGI. And you know, yeah, you know, Avatar looks great, but I can, you know, I, I watched that film, and you know, even when I saw it at the cinema, within about ten minutes, I was just like, fake. That isn't real. An element of it is almost made unenjoyable to me. But in this, just seeing how huge and cavernous. And imagine just from a filmmaking point of view, you know, how would you light it? How would you even go about kind of, you know, setting up those types of shops? It is absolutely stunning stuff. And I think, you know, I don't know, I'll have to double check, but if Ken Adams wasn't at least nominated for an Oscar, then I think it just proves what a crock of shit that uh, award is. It is, I think, definitely the best kind of climax to any of the Bond films today. Like I said, it is a very kind of Doctor No-like film, and it has virtually the same kind of... Um, I suppose kind of structure is that ending, but just on sheer visuals alone, this tops, I think, almost anything in the entire franchise. And like I said, it is a bit disappointing seeing Blofeld. Donald Pleasance isn't, you know, perhaps the most scariest of people. He looks more like, I don't know, some kind of weirdo sleazy guy that you see in your office, but, you know, whatever. He's more archetypal in nature, I suppose, as being the head of Spectre and, you know, what what could they really do to him to make him that incredible? Of course, this was another huge success. Not on the same scale as Thunderball. I think its numbers were quite a bit smaller, but it was still another massive financial success. And, of course, it was supposed to be the last Connery film. And I think it's kind of, you know, what people definitely at the time thought. And you can imagine, I suppose, it must have been kind of quite scary and exciting times for Salzman and Broccoli. You know, the world at this time was spy mad you know bond really had started a craze and i suppose the pressure to kind of be the best would be there and who of course do you kind of bring in when you know kind of connery is so kind of tied into the role for years on her majesty's secret service had been touted as the next bond film and for various reasons it hadn't happened and now at last it would and it would take bond in a completely new direction with George Lazenby in the role as James Bond. And of course, it will be my next film in this James Bond retrospective. And that will be it for this episode of the 24 Framescast. You can contact me via email at 24framescast.blogspot.com and do um, keep sending those emails, actually. I really do enjoy them, and it's going to sound slightly sad, this, but um, I'm actually self-employed, and I spend most of my time working from home, and my kind of contact with other human beings is limited really to evenings and weekends and when I get these kind of emails it does kind of like um, prove to be quite a uh, decent distraction for an hour or two so do send them over you can follow me on twitter at 24framescast and of course you can visit the blog at 24framescast.blogspot.com right hope you enjoyed it and I'll be in contact soon many thanks bye Nothing more If 
Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames cast and today I'll be continuing with the Bond Marathon with a look at On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Now I've lived through three changes to the lead actor in James Bond, uh, Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan and now Daniel Craig and I guess kind of Bond fans my age would probably consider it fairly normal now that every now and then the character is going to change somehow. Indeed we actually kind of quite look forward to it as I remember kind of especially with Daniel Craig the kind of the controversy that was surrounding that decision and the kind of the blonde's not blonde crap and all that kind of thing but it's become an event and I think something we kind of almost look forward to but I would imagine that in the 60s when Connery decided that he was going to depart the role I should imagine there was a fair degree of panic in the Bond camp would you look to kind of completely reinvent the franchise or would you just kind of do a like for like replacement I wonder even if they kind of sat and broccoli considered to uh, winding the series up. But I would imagine by the fact that it was making so much money and had become such a massive worldwide phenomenon, I would imagine they were being kind of quite keen to kind of carry on and find someone else. And that someone else would be the Australian sometime model actor George Lazenby. Now, before I get on to kind of Lazenby, we also have a kind of a few changes to the team. Uh, Peter Hunt was brought on as director. And this would be the one and only Bond film he would direct. Also, John Glenn would step up from editor to second unit director. And obviously kind of paving the way for his promotion to full-time director. Now, I think this and Diamonds Are Forever are very much transitional films with the franchise trying to find a new direction. Which I think it eventually would when we would kind of get to Roger Moore. But this is definitely to both films' detriment. Which isn't to say I didn't like Honor Majesty's Secret Service. In fact, I actually really like this film and I was really kind of taken with the change of direction in it. I think seeing a more emotional, sensitive Bond was really, I think, something we hadn't actually had before with any of the Connery films. Before I go into that, I really need to talk about what this one is actually all about. We begin with Bond saving a beautiful girl called Tracy, who just happens to be the daughter of European crime lord Marco Draco. In exchange for helping the wayward child, Draco will help Bond and MI6 track down and defeat Blofeld. Bond is offered a million pounds by Draco to marry Tracy and keep her on the straight and narrow, which of course, being the gentleman he is, he refuses, but over the course of the first half hour, slowly finds himself falling in love with the girl. Despite M's best effort, Bond decides to continue his pursuit of Blofeld, who is seeking immunity for his past crime and has concocted an audacious plan involving brainwashed women, obviously the most beautiful, to wipe out the world's agriculture, as well as being recognised as a count. The reason for this I don't think is ever made really that clear as to why that, that is completely necessary, but Bond is dispatched to Switzerland under the guise of a genealogist, where Blofeld set up a clinic to help people cure their fears, and it also doubles as his brainwashing facility. Of course, Tracy is kidnapped and Bond must rescue her and defeat his nemesis. Only this time, things will have a slightly more tragic ending. Okay, so what is it about On a Magic Secret Service that I really like? Well, the whole opening sequence with Bond rescuing Tracy from the sea, I absolutely loved up until a point, which I will get to in a minute. 
we don't actually see what the new Bond looks like. He's a very kind of mysterious figure as he drives along in a jeep. There is a kind of real sense of what on earth is actually going when we see Tracy walking out into the sea. Well, something we've never kind of seen before, I don't think, in the franchise. Normally it's kind of like Bond on a previous mission or something like that. There's not really kind of any context as to what he happens to be doing there. And then we have an absolute kind of brilliant fight scene. And although there is a little too much of the overcranking department during the direction, I think it looks a kind of very kind of, I don't know, exciting, violent Bond. And it's, I think it really kind of hooked me in. I felt that there was a mystery there that I was kind of like quite eager to get to the bottom of. However, all of this is undone in a moment of just absolute criminal stupidity. Having stoked our interests, having us kind of get to see what this Bond is like. Lazenby turns to the camera, and obviously we can't blame him, we have to blame a multitude of people for this. Looks straight into it and says, this never happened to the other fellow, or something equally, utterly stupid. And I actually groaned out loud when this happened, and God only knows, I wonder what reaction this got from audiences at the time were they kind of like rolling in the aisles or were they too like oh my god I just can't believe you did that and it is a problem that will dog this film is the constant referencing of what has gone before the opening title sequence is basically a kind of best of compilation of all the films that have gone before there's even a film um sorry a scene sorry in Bond's office where he is going through the um, contents of his drawers. Every time he pulls out a familiar object from one of the other films, we hear the musical cue from there. And I just found it so distracting and kind of annoying because I sort of thought to myself, really, what they should have been doing is sort of saying, this is just new Bond and everything goes on normal. And it's like they're drawing attention to the fact that this is still Bond. Yes, this guy is different, but this is still Bond. It is still everything that you love about Bond. And I found it so annoying. I'm sure some people might enjoy it, and I'm sure some people might kind of like like trying to, you know, see it as a quiz almost every time they hear the musical, relating it back to what film and everything. But for me anyway, I just thought it was pointless, irritating, and completely unnecessary for the story that was actually being told. But... Of course, it didn't actually ruin the film for me. It just became quite annoying. It also does raise one very big question to me, which, again, it didn't ruin the film for me, but it's certainly kind of on reflection. I do think it kind of devalues it somehow, which is, if this is the same old Bond that we've seen before, and of course, Blofeld, although in this time, it's actually played by Teddy Savage, but Blofeld would surely know Bond. So how is it then he's able to so easily infiltrate his... Um, brainwashing facility and pass himself as someone completely different it's like there's just this total leap of logic which you have to accept and I did but again it did kind of niggle me a little bit that I was having to put up with it but that being said there is a lot to the film that I do really enjoy I think Lazenby looks absolutely great and I know some iffy line delivery but he has a kind of a physicality to him which I really enjoy this is definitely a brawler in the same vein as Connery and I think he has a really kind of tender side to him which Connery never kind of let on really and I, I do think there is a kind of an emotional vulnerability to Lazenby's performance which I think kind of made him out to be so much more human than Connery I think there was obviously a very kind of aloofness to Connery's performance a lot of the time and it was quite hard sometimes to 
I suppose you kind of you like Bond for being so cool, but he wasn't a bit, he's not a particularly likable guy in, on many levels. And I think Lazenby has a likability factor to him that I don't think the franchise had before. I also think that this really leads to what the film's trump card is, which is this kind of Bond falling in love, and it it really does work. And it has I think kind of uh, Lazenby and Diana Rigg who plays Tracy have a real kind of chemistry to and this kind of the opening sets up this kind of really intriguing story and I don't really think it gets explored well enough and I think what I really wanted this film to be about was just Bond and Tracy now you could have obviously kind of got more uh you could have you could have just had them kind of like going on dates and stuff like that like turn it into a romantic comedy but I think the actual central story the kind of the whole Blofeld plot does kind of detract from the kind of the, the more interesting elements to the film and for the first time in the entire franchise, I actually had a lump in my throat at one time when, after we see Bond and Tracy get married, Bond turns round and throws, obviously, uh, played by Lois Maxwell, his hat to Miss Moneypenny. And it's this absolute beautiful, sweet, tender little moment. Yes, it is self-referential and we have the kind of, always that kind of him walking, throwing his hat onto the, um, the holder, but I thought it was such a kind of, great character moment and it said so much about their relationship and again I don't think we kind of have anything like that in the previous films it even comes close to that kind of just emotional sucker punch I would also draw attention to Peter Hunt's work because I think the film has a genuinely epic scale to it and of course um, John Glenn moving up to second unit director the fight scenes and things like that and especially the uh the final kind of chase on skis is absolutely stunning and I was quite surprised Hunt was never really brought back perhaps the film because it wasn't as big a success as the other ones perhaps they kind of thought he was kind of like damaged goods or whatever but I really felt that this had a really new and refreshing look to it I also think John Barry's score is possibly his best one he's ever done for the franchise the central theme is I think really kind of stirring stuff and I it is all complemented as well with the absolutely beautiful Louis Armstrong song we have all the time in the world, which, again, it gives the film this wonderful romantic edge which was lacking before. Although I did really enjoy You Only Live Twice, I felt at times it was too big and it was absolutely ridiculous in its scale. And it was brilliant, of course, you know, we can go back to the, kind of the Ken Adams stuff, but... I think Honor Managed Secret Service feels like a lot more stripped back and it, in a way it kind of echoes what kind of happened with Casino Royale which we kind of like we went back to Bond basics as it were. Which is why I kind of come back to this whole Blofeld plot. It does feel like a bit of a hindrance and I've read kind of quite a few reviews of the film that kind of said that the stuff in his um, research facility, which by the way was actually um, filmed at a restaurant on top of a mountain in Switzerland. I know that's I've actually been there and um, why not? well it's a pretty impressive place to go and eat lunch but it's hardly the most kind of subtle retreat for a kind of trying to live lay low kind of supervillain to build a bloody great facility at the top of a mountain. But again, you know, it's the Bond logic and we have to kind of get over it. But Tracy also is not the typical Bond girl. She is kind of so much more to her than just the kind of ogling of Bond. Her father is actually kind of brilliant as well, the way he kind of like offers his daughter up for a million pounds to Bond just to kind of keep her on the straight. And now it's kind of like, you know, of all the people in the world who you would want keeping your daughter kind of, um, how can we put it, you know, and making her a respectable woman, it would not be James Bond, let's be honest. This guy would be having affairs left, right and centre. But I suppose if we're going to put some Bond spin, this is a new, more tender, more caring Bond. 
However, there are a few things to the film which just fall completely flat. Firstly, Telly Savalis being cast as Blofeld. This has to be one of the worst pieces of cast changing in the entire franchise. I mean, we know kind of like um, Felix comes and goes, and we kind of just accept that really. That guy seems kind of like we just, it's almost kind of um, expected that that character gets changed. But Telly Savalis as Blofeld, I mean, he looks more like a thug than he does a kind of genius supervillain. And his plot is slightly ludicrous, even by Bond standards. I mean, I, I, what, what this whole kind of him wanting to find out if his account or not has to do with anything, I don't know. But, you know, having these kind of super brainwashed girls to destroy the world's uh, agriculture, sorry. Um, really, what on earth is all that about? And it it doesn't really have seem to have that much threat to it. I can't really kind of be kind of, I don't know, scared of what he's gonna do because it just seems so utterly stupid and uh, I mean I could go on about it even more and kind of get into all kind of nuts and bolts of it but it doesn't really seem to have much validity to it and I, I think it's kind of slightly ridiculous that they've even tried to sell this to audiences there is a kitsch value to the film as well when you know, Bond goes up to the research facility he has this ridiculous outfit on and you know even then apparently he's falling in love with Tracy yet he still manages to find time to shag some of the girls who are there so I don't think we can kind of really say that Bond is completely cured of his wayward ways but Lazenby does struggle sometimes I think with some of the line delivery as I said but he also kind of he gets his kind of Connery-esque lines to deliver and it just does not sound right them coming from him and all I have said you know I, I do like his prompt and I would have been really interested to see what would happen if he had stayed on with the franchise I think he has his agent to blame for that one I don't think this is in any way a bad performance. I think it's more of a curiosity factor now because it obviously just did the one and I think this film kind of falls into this kind of no man's land with Bond. But what you kind of find out of all this, I think, is that Bond had essentially started a phenomenon, this whole kind of spy phenomenon, and I think it was being overtaken by other TV shows and other films. And overall, I think the film does feel a little unambitious despite the kind of the kind of slight change in direction with the whole kind of Tracy thing I do think it is a kind of bond by numbers as it were and that was reflected in the audience reaction to it the film wasn't well received critically the numbers were down quite significantly and I think audiences were pretty kind of like yeah whatever you know I don't think it is a complete disaster by any stretch of the imagination but I just sort of feel that there was a certain kind of panic factor which went into the making of this film you know let's try and do something a little bit different but let's not go completely different and it's annoying because were this the end the last Connery film I think this would have been a really satisfying if quite dark ending to his kind of film cycle with Bond because obviously at the end you know we do as I went I suppose it's a spoiler but I think you probably might know already but Tracy gets killed at the end by Blofeld and I think that would have been a really kind of bittersweet ending to Connery's story almost and I don't kind of I don't have to kind of but kind of risk controversy here but like kind of like almost like punishing Bond like kind of making him I don't know kind of I don't know, grounding him, I suppose, because obviously this guy's been on quite an adventure from Doctor No to this, and kind of just bringing the whole thing back to a more kind of human moment. But obviously that's just kind of playing Bond fantasy. And I think you can sort of see 
the fact that now that they would go back to Connery to get him back for Diamonds of Forever. Laserby quit, and I don't, I think, from what I heard, it was something to do with his agent basically convinced him that spies were on the out and he would like, get him a lot more money. And obviously that didn't work for George because um, he has become kind of really a staple of the autograph signing circuit now, which is kind of a shame because, you know, like I said, I do, quite, I, I do like him in this and I, I would have been quite intrigued to see what would happen to Bond if he had stayed on it. But the next film... I think is really the benchmark for how bond, bad Bond can be. And I would go as far as to say as Diamonds of Forever is not only the worst film in the Bond franchise, but also one of the worst films I have ever seen in my life. And that episode will be following very soon. Many thanks for listening. If you want to email me, you can at 24framescast at gmail.com. You can come to the blog at 24framescast blogspot.com you can follow me on twitter at 24 framescast and i will be back soon with some diamonds of forever many thanks for listening see ya bye Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames Cast and this is going to be the next episode in the James Bond retrospective with a look at Diamonds Are Forever. I wonder if ever George Lazenby thinks that when he's signing autographs at conventions that perhaps he shouldn't have listened to his agent who after all his Majesty's Secret Services told him that agents were dead and that he was best off leaving the franchise. I wonder, however, if he had been around and Diamonds Are Forever, he would have actually survived anyway. Because although Lazenby, I don't think, was a bad Bond, he did decide to leave the franchise at his agent's behest, and it must have left Saltzman and Broccoli with a little bit of a dilemma again. Because I kind of think that Diamonds Are Forever is a kind of a sequel in a way to Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And I don't mean any kind of like thematic or kind of story element linking the two, but they certainly are part of a, a period in the Bond films where I don't honestly think the franchise quite knew where it was going or what to do. So Saltzman and Broccoli had to, I think, keep Bond in the public consciousness. And I guess as a kind of way of getting the fans back on track who may have been slightly disappointed with on a magic secret service was to bring back connery and we also have guy hamilton coming back on us and of course there's john barry and mayburn and mankovich are back on screenplay duties but i think it's quite ironic that the seventh film in the series should be such a clangor because Really, let's just kind of pause and think a little bit about post On Her Majesty's Secret Service Bond. 
all I've kind of said before, I don't think it was by any means a bad film or kind of truly awful or anything like that. But I think one of the reasons why it suffered was because it was clinging too much to bonds of the past. It was too afraid, I thought, to be its own thing. And Diamonds Are Forever not only clings to the past, but it virtually tries to invent a time machine and head back there. Because this was, of course, 1971. I mean, Bond was 10 years old and the world had changed. I think, obviously, I think one of the things we do kind of talk about Bond is that it was just very much a kind of a trendsetter and then somewhere in the 60s, it kind of got overtaken by kind of television and other films. And it needed, I think, to break the mould again, which is what Unimagined Secret Service and Diamonds Forever should have done. However, they didn't. They opted, I think, to play it completely safe. I heard one of the reasons why they brought Guy Hamilton back was that they wanted to kind of recapture some of the magic of Doctor No. And this does feel a very tired, boring story because Bond is sent on a mission to America, this actually Las Vegas to be sure, and there is something going on in the diamond industry, someone is buying them all up, but why and for what reason are they actually doing this? Well of course, this being a complete retread of times past, we have Blofeld coming back and getting up to no good again. Although it's one of the rare films in that you actually want the Bond villain to actually win because actually having that hope is infinitely more entertaining than watching this turgid story unfold. I could go into slightly more kind of plot specifics but I won't because I really can't be bothered and even kind of like talking about this film too much um, kind of sends me under really. But where really can we start? Well. Let's look at kind of the positive things about Diamonds Are Forever, and there is only really one I can actually kind of think of, which is the fact that Connery was then paid a record $1.25 million. This was an unheard of amount for an actor to get paid, and good on him because he actually took the $1.25 million and he gave it all to charity, so at least, I suppose, there was some good to come out of this film. I don't know whether he did that because it was some kind of, I don't know, he was some believer in kind of karma and upon reading the script he decided that the only way to kind of actually kind of atone for what he was about to do would be to give all the money away. But what kind of a great thing to do and you know, on a side note, you know, he does come across as a really kind of top guy, Connery, and you know, to do that, what, what a wonderful thing. And obviously $1.25 million is a, it's a lot of money, you know, that's, you know, back then, you know, that was, that was a huge amount of money and, you know, I think it actually cost more than Doctor No. So, Good on him for doing that, but I don't think it's overly unfair of me to say that you can tell that the years have caught up with Connery in this thing. He simply looks a little bit too old. Yes, I think he still has the charm, and it's pleasing to say that the level of abuse directed at women goes up through the roof again, but in many respects, I think this actually feels like parody to an extent. The one-liners are so forced, it's a bit like watching an episode of Friends in places. And you have to really kind of, I suppose, pity Connery in a way, because the screenplay is so dull and so boring that this is really, it's a, it's bond by numbers to much of the time. And really, Connery doesn't have a great deal to do in the film. He's kind of back as kind of the detective bond again, but it's very much plodding from one kind of uninteresting scene to another. It's not just, I suppose, Connery who's being shortchanged in all this. There are some other elements to it which are just, I suppose, almost transcend awful. And this is the 
I suppose a first in any Bond film. I don't recall ever having kind of characters like these, but two openly gay hitmen called Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid. Then you could say, you know, how progressive, how kind of new age to have this kind of spin on the hitman, but the problem with Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid is that they have to be two of the most ludicrous screen villains to ever grace cinema. Words cannot explain how utterly appalling these two are. This isn't homophobia, believe me. It's just that I cannot get my head around. Who actually thought this was a good idea in execution? How could they have watched the Daily Rushes and thought, Do you know what, this is working really well. These two, now, I suppose the thing about them is that, you know, kind of the Bond villains is that they're meant to be kind of scary in a way. But these two, you just look at them and you just think, oh, fuck off. If those two came at you, you know, they're not scary in the least. And I remember when I saw Diamonds of Forever as a child, I've been quite confused. There's one scene where they start holding hands. And I think my confusion has kind of stayed with me upon seeing this film. Again, not obviously because I'm wondering why they're gay, but at what level did this get approved? Who, who actually, and I kind of got to thinking, who thought this was a good idea? What on earth did they think they were doing? You know, this is Guy Hamilton. The guy's a good director. You know, surely he would have gone back to the writers and gone, look, I'm sorry guys, but this is just absolutely fucking stupid. And in execution, what kind of what kind of direction was he giving them? You know, the the, the line delivery between them. I, I was actually thinking of playing a clip, but I, I don't think I can bring myself to do it. You just have to see them to believe it. But the kind of the awfulness doesn't actually stop there because Jill St. John as Tiffany Case, who she is a diamond smuggler who becomes one of Bond's kind con of conquests, is absolutely horrific. Her line delivery. It, it is literally like nails down a chalkboard. I don't know how, I mean, if I was Bond and someone had her along me, I'd just say, look, I'm sorry. You're gonna have to just piss off because I can't take you near me. But you can tell, I, I think you can actually tell Connery is just like looking at her thinking, this is absolutely beneath me. Because she kind of prances round in this film in a way where I kind of expected Benny Hill to appear from behind a corner and that ridiculously funny music to start playing. And of course, you know, we have to kind of, get her into the final climatic battle, which it's, it's almost, it takes a, well, I guess actually kind of Return of the Jedi takes a page at this because of her sheer implausibility at, at what she actually brings to it. And then there's actually a scene where I think she's like firing a gun or something and she just falls off this oil rig that they're fighting on and kind of Bond looks at her and you know, I, I guess he's kind of meant to be kind of giving this, uh, I suppose, a funny aside or something like that. And it's just like, you could, I can almost hear the groan from 1971 come, still echoing around the world. It's just absolutely so awful. And it, you know, things don't stop there. There's Bambi and Thumper, who are kind of a pair of, I don't know, aerobic hit women who beat up Bond and then eventually kind of have the weakest resolution to that fight as well. I suppose you might be getting the impression that I was not a fan of this film. And I don't know that I can honestly say that there is anything in it which I think is in the least bit worthy of praise. The Las Vegas setting for the film as well, I think, kind of feels kind of strangely out of place in Bond. This, yeah, this was, I suppose, the first one that was kind of like really set in America throughout, but the kind of the neon strips and the casinos don't seem to seem right. I, I guess you could say it's kind of uns, unsophisticated to an extent, but I think it just looks absolutely crap. And then this looks like Vegas at the height of its kind of 
well, I suppose getting towards the I suppose the 80s would be the kind of the pinnacle of just how bad it was but it just looks like it's this kind of faded kind of once great institution that's just gone straight down the crapper and I don't know if you've, I don't know if it was Vegas then ever any good I don't know but it, it just looks pretty terrible and I, I suppose in a way you, I might sort of say it's kind of unsophisticated but I just, I just think it looks absolutely crap there are a few set pieces of note I kind of there's a vaguely entertaining car chase but um <laughs> it, it's entertaining notes, but it actually has a an audience this car chase because quite clearly um, everyone wanted to watch it so you can clearly see people lining up on the sides of the street watching it and there's this kind of um, bond escaping on this kind of like tricycle device which is vaguely amusing but it all kind of builds towards this Darth finale and that kind of really leaves you wondering why Blofeld who has about 30 chances to kill Bond throughout the film why he just didn't do this in the first place and save everyone the hassle but all being said, the film was a hit of sorts. It did make um, over a hundred million dollars, so uh, yeah, it obviously did pretty well. But its reputation isn't great, and I, I, I really think you can you can see why. It is in retrospect, I think it's a very unnecessary bond. It is just to kind of keep the name out there in the public, and obviously, you know, it made a lot of money. You know, it made people, no doubt, very rich people, very even more rich. But thankfully, it is the last of these kind of in-between bonds because. Things do get better going forward from here, I think, for a bit. And it would be, of course, the introduction to a new generation of Bond. And that would, of course, come in the form of Roger Moore as 007.